1: Herbert Marshall. I am, as some of you will know, an an actor, a player of parts, a meddler, if you will, in other people's dreams. Upon request, those of my craft can summon up a tragedy or a comedy, weep over ancient wrongs, make fantasy real, and reality a thing as formless as the mists that roll in come midnight over the coast of Britain. But tonight I come on a different errand. The dreams I meddle with are my own and yours. For herewith is the story of a man who yet walks among us, whose words you have heard, whose decisions, for better or for worse, have molded our lives and the ways of generations yet unborn. Next Tuesday, he will be 80 years old. But
2: listen. I am, as I am reminded, an old man. It is true that all the daydreams of my youth have been accomplished. I have no personal advantage to gain by undertaking once more the hard and grim duty of leading Britain and our empire. But while God gives me the strength and the people show me their goodwill, it is my duty to try, and try I will.
1: Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. Still for him, the tumult and the shouting, the captains and the kings. But for us on this birthday eve, time for a looking back. Time to walk again the paths we walked together in less quiet days. Here, in Sir Winston's own incomparable words, is the story of our times. The pride and the shame, the glory and the pain of it. The tumult and the shouting.
0: Alice Chalmers Manufacturing Company and in Canada, Alice Chalmers Rumley Limited and Canadian Alice Chalmers Limited present The Tumult and the Shouting, an audio biography of Sir Winston Churchill titled His Finest Hour, a program specially prepared in honor of his 80th birthday next Tuesday. This is Ben Grauer speaking. In the next 55 minutes or so, we shall bring back the voice of Sir Winston Churchill, a voice caught in its most dramatic moments and held against the year. We shall hear the French premiere when alien boots tramp the streets of Paris. We shall hear Sir Laurence Olivier, Sir Rafe Richardson, Lynn Fontaine, and a host of ladies and gentlemen who, each in his own fashion, wishes to say, Happy Birthday. You know, this is an era of spectacular progress, particularly in bringing the good things of life to more and more people. Three important economic measurements of how well we live are these. The abundance of food and fiber we produce, our production and use of electrical energy, and a construction program to match our growing population. Alice Chalmers seeks to contribute to better living by building key machines necessary for progress in each of these three fields. Consider the need for more construction. Population totals in the United States and Canada are increasing by more than 50,000 every week, almost the equivalent of two new cities the size of Philadelphia and Ottawa every year. To house these new citizens... Our two countries are building new homes at a rate of more than a million yearly. Consider also that new motor vehicles are going into use at more than double the rate of street and highway construction. That is why each of our countries is giving increased attention to road improvement with a new $100 billion program under study in the United States. Alice Chalmers builds many of the key machines necessary to such progress. Crawler tractors, motor scrapers motor graders and engines for earth-moving, logging, mining, and pipe-laying, crushers, screens, cement plants, and equipment to help mines and quarries turn out the raw materials of construction. Yes, construction is one of the measuring sticks of progress toward better living, and it is the gratifying work of Alice Chalmers to build machines which contribute to this progress. And now, here to guide us on our story of Sir Winston Churchill is one of the most distinguished gentlemen of the American and British theater, Mr. Herbert Marshall.
1: How do you take the measure of a man? We have learned to gauge a mountain's height, to trace the contours of the ocean floor. We can triangulate the miles that stretch from here to the nearest star. But man, this most multitudinous and familiar of creatures, here is mystery. Young Churchill must have been a mystery to one of his schoolmasters, for example, who remembered him only as a somewhat reluctant student who had difficulty pronouncing the letter S. He was born in a rambling old castle, nourished in plenty, molded by traditions older even than his name. In short, had every opportunity to develop into a typical landed English gentleman, respected and honored by his family, and totally unknown beyond the narrow parish wherein he conducted his affairs. But fame is a jealous mistress, and whoso would win her favors knows many a rocky road and many a sleepless night. There was war in India, and he had learned the color of blood at a time when most of his fellow students at Sandhurst were still wrestling with the book of regulations. There was a bigger war in France in which he took a bigger part. First Lord of the Admiralty, then the first of many setbacks. Demoted and again a frontline officer, but even then, those who listened knew that a very special man had come among them. Let me ask you this
2: what subtle, almost mystic essence to fight thousands of miles across South Africa?
1: All the world listens.
2: Bludgeon great races the Czechs, the Poles, the Norwegians, the Danes, the Dutch, the Belgians upon all of whom the long night of barbarism will descend unbroken even by a star of hope unless we conquer as conquer we must as conquer we shall
1: Prime Minister Winston Churchill all back in this hour of trial, and the story that was over has just begun. Winston Churchill, this man with a face like Mister Pickwick and a voice like a swashbuckling Elizabethan, Winston Churchill, a name to conjure with, a man to stand against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and throw his defiance against the storm. The night he became prime minister, May the tenth, it was 1940. A British destroyer slipped out of the harbour at Southampton for patrol duty along the channel. Another ship was coming in. In a matter of seconds, the signal was flashed from the first ship to the second. Winnie's is back. And across the dark waters of the bay, there came the echo of cheering as the message was passed from mouth to mouth. Winnie's is back. Tell it to the young mother struggling to fit a gas mask on her youngest and uncomprehending son... Tell it to the soldiers poised to cross the channel to give aid to the retreating French. The English Channel, since time out of mind, a moat to this fortress island. A road to less happier lands. A wall that divides Britain from the world.
3: The sea is calm tonight. The tide is full, the moon lies fair upon the straits. On the French coast, the light gleams and is gone. The cliffs of England stand, glimmering and vast, out in the tranquil bay. Come to the window. Sweet is the night air. Only from the long line of spray where the sea meets the moon-blanched land, listen. You hear the grating roar of pebbles which the waves draw back and fling at the return of the high strand. Begin and cease and then again begin with tremulous cadence slow, and bring the eternal note of sadness in. Sophocles long ago heard it on the Aegean and it brought into his mind the turbid ebb and flow of human misery. We find also in the sound a thought, hearing it by this distant northern sea. The sea of faith was once too at the full, and round earth's shore lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy long withdrawing roar, retreating to the breath of the night wind, down the vast edges drear and naked shingles of the world. Our ah, love, let us be true to one another. For the world which seems to lie before us like a land of dreams, so various, so beautiful, so new, have really neither joy, nor love, nor light, nor certitude, nor peace, nor help or pain. And we are here as on a darkling plain, swept with confused alarms of struggle and flight, where ignorant armies clash by night.
1: They managed to sting, some of them, God knows how, of their retreat. Long lines crowding down on the beach at Dunkirk. Whole regiments missing. Half their equipment lining the road that stretched back to the channel. The enemy had been too strong, too fast. Back they came from the battle, not in disorder as frightened men come, but in weariness and sick in heart as men who have been asked to do too much. Dunkirk. A small French town perched on the rim of the waves that gave it birth. Stand where you are, you with the weariness in your eyes. Rest a moment, you too young to learn what you have learned these last few days. Look to the sea. Over the rim of the horizon, a miracle is in the making. A hastily assembled fleet. Fishing craft, most of them. Occasionally the trim lines of a pleasure craft. An icebox fashioned for champagne, now holding plasma. And so they came back. In Berlin, Hitler smiled and clapped his hands like a child. Britain, that most formidable of enemies, had been engaged and beaten. Beaten? Not quite. It's June the 19th, 1940. The hospital's a crowd with men who returned. Even as we speak, the Luftwaffe is gathering for the first blow what now, Mr. Prime Minister?
2: I do not at all underrate the severity of the ordeal which lies before us. For all of us, whatever our sphere or station, it will be a help to think of the famous lines: he nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene. I, more, freedom shall be restored to all. We abate nothing of our just demands. Not one jot or tittle do we recede. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be freed and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duty. And so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour.
1: Britain stood alone. Each night was a repetition of the last. Each dawn saw the enemy hasten away like some evil creature who walks only at night. Fire licking at the majestic dome of St. Paul's. Bombs falling on the slums of Whitechapel and Spitalfields, as though to compound the misery already there. Bombs in the palace yard and a king who stands unmoved at the crash of glass and the splintering of wood. These sounds would echo across the world would be heard of the huge, rambling old house that sits back from the street at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. No matter how many doors were closed against it, the sound came through. You could hear it in Dubuque. You could hear it in Cleveland at Medicine Hat. Bombs and the sound of marching feet. They rang down every street. The echo beat against your door. President
4: Lincoln said, in
2: 1862... Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us in honor or dishonor to the latest generation.
1: And so, what Mr. Churchill was to call the Grand Alliance began to take form. June the 22nd, 1941, and a world grown familiar with the unbelievable heard a piece of news that strained all credulity. In the early hours of the morning, Adolf Hitler had invaded Russia. Like Napoleon before him, he sent his legions swarming into the plains that stretch out beyond the Niemen River. Like Napoleon, he spoke contemptuously of the Russian winter, the long nights, the wind that sweeps down out of Siberia like the stab of a sword. Once again in Downing Street, time for decision.
2: At four o'clock this morning, Hitler attacked and invaded Russia. No one has been a more consistent opponent of communism than I have for the last 25 years. I will unsay no word that I've spoken about it. But all this fades away before the spectacle which is now unfolding. The past with its crimes, its follies and its tragedies flashes away. Any man or state who fights against Nazism will have our aid. Any man or state who marches with Hitler is our foe. That is our policy and that is our declaration. It follows, therefore, that we shall give whatever help we can to Russia and to the Russian people.
1: It is not given to the living to see the future. Hitler could not divine the Battle of Stalingrad nor could the powers of the West foresee with clarity the twisting, tortured way that lay out of Stalingrad, but to the West, a star of hope for all free men. Two months after the invasion of Russia, a British ship of war anchored somewhere off the coast of Newfoundland. The sun turned the Windlash Sea into a carpet of sparkling jewels. President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill met on the huge quarterdeck and talked like the old friends they were. And from their talks was forged the Atlantic Charter, a map for the path to freedom, a compact for the future. Sunday morning found them with their work done. And in the manner of their fathers, they found time to give thanks that Sunday morning. Roosevelt sitting there in that old cape he loved so well, the Prime Minister next to him smiling as they and the crew joined in singing... Onward, Christian soldiers. We had a church parade
2: on the Sunday in our Atlantic Bay. The president came onto the quarterdeck of the Prince of Wales where there were mingled together many hundreds of American and British sailors and Marines. The sun shone bright and warm while we all sang the old hymns which are our common inheritance and which we learned as children in our homes. When I looked upon that densely packed congregation, the fighting men, it swept across me that here was the only hope, but also the sure hope of saving the world from measureless degradation. And so we came back across the ocean waves, Uplifted in spirit, fortified in resolve. And then I felt that hard and terrible and long drawn out as this struggle may be, we shall not be denied the strength to do our duty
3: to the end.
1: And so the bonds were forged. Ties the more subtle for being unseen. A friendship stronger because of the test that must be met. Capitol Hill in Washington. Congress and convention assembled stands in tribute to the man who walked slowly to the Speaker's stand. Senate. House of Representatives. These are not part of the vocabulary of government as he has learned it. But this man is no stranger to any assemblage. Where English is the language spoken.
2: Uh, I cannot help for reflecting that if my father had been uh, American and my mother British, <coughs> instead of the other way around, I-, I might have got here on my own. <laughs> In that case, this would not have been the first time you would have heard my voice. Uh, In that case, I should not have needed any invitation. But if I had, it is hardly likely that it would have been unanimous. So, uh, perhaps things are better as they are.
1: One final word before he returns to his bomb-wrecked homeland. It is December the 24th, 1941, that most somber Christmas Eve. A tree has been lighted on the White House lawn, an act of defiance almost on that day. A desperate attempt at make-believe, a way of telling yourself and your neighbor that this Christmas will be just like all other Christmases, when we all knew it would not. The President has spoken to the group who came down to watch the ceremony, and now... Would the Prime Minister say a few words?
2: Fellow soldiers in the cause, this is a strange Christmas Eve. Almost the whole world is locked in deadly struggle. Armed with the most terrible weapons which science can devise, the nations advance upon each other. Ill would it be for us this Christmas tide if we were not sure that no greed for the lands or wealth of any other people, no vulgar ambition, no morbid lust for material gain at the expense of others had led us to the field. Ill would it be for us If that were so, here in the midst of war, raging and roaring over all the lands and seas, creeping nearer to our hearts and homes, here amid all these tumults, we have tonight the peace of the spirit in each cottage home and in every generous heart. Therefore, we may cast aside, for this night at least, the cares and dangers which beset us, and make for the children uh, an evening of happiness in a world of storm. Here then, for one night only, each home throughout the English-speaking world should be a brightly lighted island of happiness and peace. Let the children have their night of fun and laughter. Let the gifts of Father Christmas delight their play. Let us, grown-ups, share to the full in their unstinted pleasures. Before we turn again to the stern task and formidable year that lie before us, Resolve that by our sacrifice and daring, these same children shall not be robbed of their inheritance or denied their right to live in a free and decent world. And so, in God's mercy, a happy Christmas to you all.
0: are midway in our 80th birthday tribute to Sir Winston Churchill. We continue after a brief pause for station identification.
5: And again,
1: here is Herbert Marshall. In the fullness of time, the final scene was played. It came suddenly, it seemed, to many of us. All at once there were Allied soldiers at the gates of Berlin, Hitler dead by his own hand, The German divisions that once seemed invincible were fleeing down roads that just four years before they had marched in arrogance and victory. Traffic was stopped in Trafalgar Square. It was the same in Times Square, in Melbourne, Toronto, in Atlanta and Oslo, and as before, this voice above all others.
2: The German war is therefore at an end. We may allow ourselves a brief period of rejoicing. But let us not forget for a moment the toils and efforts that lie ahead. Advance Britannia. Long live the cause of freedom.
1: royal throne of kings, this sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier land. This blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. And so we are come to wish a happy birthday to the Prime Minister. We, who owe him much, offer what words we can as a, as a part payment, if you will, for services rendered. In so doing, we take our place among a distinguished company. We are pleased to present the Canadian Prime Minister, the Honourable Louis Saint Laurent.
6: Canada is delighted to join in the birthday salute to Sir Winston Churchill, and I am greatly honoured to have been asked to be the spokesman for my 15 million fellow Canadians. In this country, we recall with heartfelt admiration and gratitude the peerless leadership he gave to us all in the grim days of the war when the Commonwealth, unaided, was fighting the forces of evil. Sir Winston, in those days, had become far more than the Prime Minister of any one country. For all of us, his voice was the voice of human freedom and he represented the symbol of the unconquerable spirit of free men and women faced with terrible odds. Even with victory won, Sir Winston chose not to stand on his already matchless record, but to continue to devote unstintingly his great talents of statesmanship to securing the peace. Canadians remember his immeasurable service in the cause of freedom, in war, and in peace, And they send affectionate greetings to Sir Winston Churchill on his birthday anniversary and wish him
1: strength for the burdens which still lie ahead. Across the channel from Britain, there are many who remember and wish to add their voice. France, her fields even in this harvest time, 1954, still bearing the scars of the storm, her beaches gaunt with the skeletons of the liberation fleet. France will not... Forget. Ladies and gentlemen, the wartime premier of France, Monsieur Paul Renault.
4: Sir Winston Churchill reaches today his eighty years surrounded by his glory. From time to time, people announce that he's going to retire. I don't believe it. As I know my illustrious friend, his secret desire is to die standing addressing the House of Commons. He's a fighter. Before the war, we fought together to reveal the danger of war to our people and to urge our governments to prepare for war. During the war, we were companions in distress. After my overthrow in Bordeaux in 1940 for refusing to ask an armistice, I always believed in victory. In all the prisons in which I was held during five years in France and in Germany, I never doubted. And one of the reasons for my conviction was that Churchill was standing at the helm.
1: And in his own land, pictures of him in cottages that have been standing, one suspects, since the days of the protector. The crowds who stand in the rain before Downing Street, amply rewarded, they feel, by a glimpse of his black derby or his hand raised in the V for victory symbol. The deference that is his even in the great halls of Windsor Castle. This is his reward. This are the words from those who love him. From London, the British Foreign Secretary, the Right Honourable Sir Anthony Eden. What I think will strike you all about the tributes which are being paid today to Winston Churchill is their, their diversity and variety. This very fact is the measure of his grandeur and quality. There have been many men in our generation to whom the epithet great might be applied virtues choose all accomplishments.
7: ...knowledge of the language and his understanding of the colloquial, this grammarian took exception to a sentence which ended with a preposition. Not wishing to make a major issue of it, he simply placed a red exclamation point next to the offending word. When the script was returned to Churchill, he got very angry. He refused to change a single word and uttered the classic reply, such arrant pedantry, I cannot up with put. But perhaps his humor, like his prose, reached a new height during the war. It was Sir Winston himself who spread the story of an audience given by the king and himself to an American banker at a time when the outlook was blackest for England. London is being raided nightly, the king is supposed to have said. Rommel may capture Suez. India is in ferment. Japan menaces Australia. What to do? What to do? The American considered gravely, according to Sir Winston, and then suggested, Your Majesty, if I were you, I'd put Canada in the Queen's name.
1: America and Britain. The old world and the new. We got to know each other pretty well in those years when Britain played host to the young men and women with the U.S. on the collars of their uniforms, but not quite well enough. It remained for an American woman to write the lines that will, I think, forever interpret Britain to America and America to Britain. Miss Alice Dewar Miller... Gave us the story of an American girl who married an Englishman and. Oh, but listen. Miss Lynn Fontaine in a reading from the White Cliffs of Dover.
8: Later than many, earlier than some, I knew the die was cast, that war must come, that war must come. Night after night I lay, stealing a broken heart to face the day when he, my son, would tread the very same path that his father trod. When the day came, I was not sealed, not ready. Foolish, wild words issued from my lips. My child, my child, why should you die for England too? He smiled. Is she not worth it if I must, he said. John would have answered yes. But John was dead. Is she worth dying for? My love, my one and only love, had died and now his son asks me, his alien mother, to assay the worth of England to mankind today. I thought of my father's deep traditional wrath against England, the redcoat bully, the ancient foe. That second reaping of hate, that aftermath of a ruler's folly and ignorance long ago. Long, long ago. Yet who can honestly say England is utterly changed? Not I. Not I. Arrogance, ignorance, folly are here today. And for these, my son must die. I thought of these years, these last dark, terrible years, when the rulers of England bade the English believe lies as the price of peace. Lies and fears, lies that corrupt and fears that sap and deceive. Rulers of England, for them must I send out my only son to die. And then and then, I thought of the history of Englishmen, of Queen Elizabeth stepping down over the stones of Plymouth Town to greet the men who had sailed away from Rocky Inlet and Wooded Bay. Free men, undisciplined, uncontrolled, some of them pirates, all of them old, feeling their fate was England's fate coming to save it a little late, much too late for the easy way, much too late, and yet never quite too late to win in that last worst fight. Men who have governed England know that dreadful line that they may not pass. Even Elizabeth, long ago, honored and loved and bold as brass, daring and subtle, arrogant, clever, yet even the great Elizabeth never dared oppose the sullen might of the English, standing upon a right. And were they not English, our forefathers? Never more English than when they shook the dust of her sod from their feet forever, angrily seeking a shore where in his own way a man might worship his God. Never more English than when they dared be rebels against her. That stern, intractable sense of that which no man can stomach can still be free, writing when in the course of human events, writing it out so all the world could see whence come the powers of all just governments. The tree of liberty grew and changed and spread, but the seed was English. I am American-bred. I have seen much to hate here, much to forgive. But in a world where England is finished and dead, I do not wish to live.
0: Friends, this is Ben Grawer again. Probably no one machine has contributed as much to our abundance of food and fiber as the farm tractor. One of agriculture's great steps forward came when Alice Chalmers introduced the rubber-tired tractor. Another came with the adaptation of tractors, combine harvesters, and other power equipment to the family-size farm. Introduced more recently by Alice Chalmers was a machine called the Roto-Baler, which makes weather-resistant round bales. And now, there's a forage harvester which brings pasture to the cattle in the feedlot, cutting the cost of producing milk and beef. Today, Alice Chalmers' tractors and equipment with many new conveniences and advantages can be bought for fewer bushels of wheat or corn or fewer pounds of cotton or livestock than previous to World War II. A sound and prosperous agriculture is essential to a healthy economy. And Alice Chalmers continues to pioneer... In building power farm equipment, which brings better living, better farming, and more profit to the family farm. Mr. Marshall?
1: So we come almost to the present. Fulton, Missouri. President Truman and Prime Minister Churchill sit on a small platform on the college grounds, both a little incongruous in their academic robes. Mr. Churchill rises to speak. No one knows that within seconds a new phrase is to be added to the English language.
2: An iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade... Bucharest, and
1: you. It was the end of an era, and the beginning of the new. But even as we listen to this voice, their needs must fall a shadow across the room. For the time will come when we will never again hear a new speech from this man, or turn a fresh page in the writings that seem to flow like some inexhaustible stream from his study. You who would write, listen first to this.
2: Writing a book is an adventure. Uh, uh, To begin with, it is a toy and an amusement and then it becomes a mistress and then it becomes a master and then it becomes a tyrant and the last phase is that just as you are about to be reconciled to your servitude, you, you, you kill the monster
4: <laughs>
2: and fling him about to the public. The more we uh, uh, preserve our language,
3: <coughs>
2: see it is not unduly, unduly damaged by m- modern slang adaptations um, and intruders, I was shocked the other day to hear the Chancellor of the Exchequer use the word quantify. you ever heard that before? I hope you will never hear it again.
3: Quantify. No.
2: Uh, I believe it was a substitute for estimate. Well, uh, uh, let us be careful of that. Another uh, odious expression is uh, in very common use, which is to say in short supply. So why can't you say scarce? (laughs) Broadly speaking, the short words are the best. And the old words, when short, are the best, are the best of all.
5: Somebody said that the only events that pass into history are those which some men wrote memorably about. Well, certainly there are people who never heard of Texas, if you can imagine anyone so benighted, who have heard of the Alamo. Because one man, who knew a little Greek, once said about it, Thermopylae had its messengers of defeat, the Alamo had none. This is
1: Mr. Alistair Cook of the Manchester Guardian, long an observer of the American scene, and a very special student of what I suppose will be called the Churchillian language,
5: Mr. Cook. We are honoring tonight the most many-sided man since Leonardo da Vinci, and it's my privilege to talk to you for a couple of minutes about the side of him that guarantees immortality to all the others. The lucky fact that he writes better than all contemporary men of events, and so has become already his own best historian. Anybody who has ever read a page of Churchill or heard him talk is aware of being in the presence of a man who enjoys the big gesture and the grand adjective. So do all politicians. But they go to the same tawdry costume house to clothe their thoughts, whereas, as a ghostwriter once reminded a despairing president, Churchill rolls his own. In one speech, he could describe the war to the House of Commons... as a stand against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed... in the dark, lamentable catalogue of human crime. And a month later, he simply told the same audience... get used to the bombings. Eels get used to skinning. Some will always remember his language in full regalia... and some will prefer his rapier in the house. At four o'clock this morning... Hitler invaded Russia. All his usual formalities of perfidy were scrupulously observed. He is unique in being able to handle the ordinary English sentence with equal mastery as a diamond-encrusted sword, a big stick, or a pea shooter. But he could have all this and still be merely the most eloquent politician of our time. What will make him unforgettable, I think is the miraculous coincidence that he was the best historian of tremendous events in which he was also the chief actor. It is as if Gibbon had been also the most eminent of the Roman emperors.
1: Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, a name to conjure with, a giant who walks among us, a voice to interpret what has gone before and to give new meaning to the ancient words, courage and honor and dignity. It is usual for gentlemen who reach an advanced age... to be asked to give a piece of advice for those who will come after. Sir Winston has performed this duty as he has all the others. Listen. Out of the wisdom of the past... assign signpost to the future.
2: If the human race... wishes to have a, a prolonged and indefinite period... Of material prosperity. They've only got to behave in a peaceful and helpful way towards one another. And science will do for them all that they wish and more than they can dream. Nothing is final, change is unceasing, and it is very likely that mankind has a lot more to learn before they come to their journey's end. We might even find ourselves in a few years moving along a broad, smooth causeway of peace and plenty instead of roaming and peering round along the rim of hell. Thus, we may, by patience, courage and in orderly progression reach someday, with God's blessing, the shelter of a calmer and kindlier age.
1: Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill, hold his words against the years. His life will not again pass this way in our lifetime nor yet in the allotted time of our children. How shall we take the measure of this man? Of all the words that have spilled from his pen, there is one short passage that perhaps above all else shows us the workings of his mind and heart. We have heard these words before. They were spoken not in victory, but in defeat. They were spoken not in the confidence of youth, but in the twilight of age. He had just been defeated for re-election at the end of the war. A few supporters came to his home that night to give condolences. He spoke briefly to them. And let it be known to all of us around the world.
2: I am, as I am reminded, an old man... It is true that all the daydreams of my youth have been accomplished. I have no personal advantage to gain by undertaking once more the hard and grim duty of leading Britain and our empire. But while God gives me the strength and the people show me their goodwill, it is my duty to try and try, I will
0: Alice Chalmers Manufacturing Company and in Canada, Alice Chalmers Rumley Limited and Canadian Alice Chalmers Limited have presented The Tumult and the Shouting, an audio biography of Sir Winston Churchill titled His Finest Hour, written and directed by William Allen Bales. Dover Beach was spoken by Sir Lawrence Olivier, the passage from Richard II by Sir Rafe Richardson. This is Ben Grauer speaking from the NBC Newsroom. This has been an NBC Radio Network presentation. Senator Arthur Watkins will meet the press tonight on the NBC Radio Network.